You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. I'm Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, rock star chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is July 16th, 2022, and this is episode 182 of Lighthearted. Shortly, we'll hear an interview I did with three people from the Friends of Plum Island Light in Massachusetts. It's a place and an organization I've known very well for many years. Have you been to Plum Island, Michelle? I have, Jeremy. I went a few years ago on a very, very cold January morning to get pictures at sunrise of the lighthouse. It's, it's, very, it's a very pretty light. I really enjoyed the visit there. It is. It's a beautiful old wooden lighthouse. There aren't yeah. a lot of uh, 19th century wooden lighthouses still standing. Right. But also the other side of Plum Island, uh, the, the southern uh, portion of Plum Island is a national wildlife refuge, and that's a great place to visit too. Yes. Uh, so I, I recommend that to any of our listeners. Go see the lighthouse and the wildlife refuge. We'll be talking more about that, of course. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, my, my early, I grew up in Lynn, Massachusetts, near Boston, and, and uh, my first memory of Plum Island which uh, Newburyport, Plum Island, is just a fairly short distance north of uh, where I grew up in Lynn. My first memory of Plum Island was uh, when I was around like six or seven, I would say, somewhere around there. And an aunt and uncle rented a house there in summer. We went there for a visit, stayed there for a couple of days. I remember watching my uncle surf casting for striped bass from the shore. And he actually let me pull one of the fish ashore. I'm not sure I did it all by myself, but I, I felt like I did. And uh, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And uh, I still think of that whenever I visit Plum Island. So before we move on to our interview, uh, I'd like to tell people about some lighthouse photography events that are coming up this summer. Sure, Jeremy. Maine photographer Mike Leonard has a couple of events coming up. He'll be doing a photo cruise on the Schooner Heron out of Rockport, Maine on August 27th, and he'll be doing a sunrise photography cruise out of Booth Bay Harbor, Maine on September 10th. You can get more info on his website at phototourismbymike.com. Another photographer friend of this podcast, Pete Lero, that's L-E-R-R-O, will be doing a special photography cruise of Delaware Bay Lighthouses out of Cape May, New Jersey on August 10th. He's also got several other lighthouse-related photo workshops in the works. See lerophotography.com to find out more. So, Michelle, please help me tell everyone about Plum Island Light and our guests. Sure, Jeremy. Plum Island, a nine-mile-long barrier island off the northern coast of Massachusetts, was first connected to the mainland by bridge in 1806. Newburyport was an important port by the late 1700s. The approach to the harbor was dangerous, with the sandbar and shifting channels at the mouth of the Merrimack River near the northern end of Plum Island. To aid shipping entering the river, a pair of unlighted day beacons were erected in 1783, and for a time the Marine Society of Newburyport employed persons to hoist lanterns on the beacons at night. These methods proved inadequate, and in November 1787, the General Court of Massachusetts authorized the building of two small wooden lighthouses. The lights would be an early example of range lights, meaning mariners would keep one light lined up behind the other as they proceeded in the correct channel. The two lighthouses, which began operation in 1788, had to be moved often as the channel shifted. 
Aids to Navigation came under federal jurisdiction in 1789, and the General Assembly of Massachusetts officially granted the light station to the U.S. in 1790. It isn't clear who maintained the lights in their earliest days, but President George Washington approved the appointment of Abner Lowell of Newburyport as keeper in March 1790. The towers had to be rebuilt after a tornado in 1808, and one of the towers was later destroyed by fire in 1856. For some years, a makeshift lighthouse known as a bug light served in tandem with the surviving tower. In 1898, a new 45-foot conical shingled wooden lighthouse was built next to the old one. It was first lighted on September 20, 1898. In 1951, the light was automated, and in 1981, it was changed to flashing green. It remains an active aid to navigation. The lighthouse is now cared for by the Friends of Plum Island Light, a nonprofit organization formed in the 1990s. In 2003, ownership of the lighthouse was turned over to the city of Newburyport. The Friends of Plum Island Light continue to care for it under a lease agreement with the city. Rosalind Esposito is a longtime resident of Plum Island and volunteer for the Friends and Jen Bogard is the Secretary of the Friends, and she serves on the Board of Directors of Newburyport's Custom House Maritime Museum. She's also an author. Also taking part in today's interview is Bill Cooper, who serves on the Board of Directors of Friends of Plum Island Light and has been the leader of Lighthouse Projects for the last five years. Bill is a retired mechanical engineer with General Electric. I've been friendly with Rosalind and other people with the Friends of Plum Island Light for around 20 years or so, and it was a pleasure to do this interview recently. So let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking this morning with uh, Rosalind Esposito, Jen Bogard, and Bill Cooper, who are all volunteers, very active volunteers for Friends of Plum Island Light in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Plum Island has certainly been in my life for a long time. I've uh, loved the place since I was a kid. I'm really happy to be talking about this subject today. Thank you all so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. So uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about your personal connections. We'll talk about the lighthouse, of course, and a little bit about its history and what's going on there now. But I'd like to talk a little bit about all of you uh, in relation to the lighthouse uh, and the island. Rosalind, why, why don't we start with you? So what originally brought you to Plum Island and how did you get involved with the lighthouse? Well, family has been here since families were here, I think. My great uncle Tom Maddock was the life saving station head down here for many years and worked closely with the lighthouse people, of course. And the Wood Boys, uh, how do I explain this? Two Wood sisters married two Maddock cousins. Okay. Or something like two Maddock sisters married two Wood cousins. That's how it goes. <laughs> okay. And so they became a close knit family. And the Wood Boys and the Maddock boys all spent summers down here working at the station when a lot of the people got off because there weren't a lot of rough seas at the time. So uh, they filled in for vacation times and stuff. So my dad yeah. worked down here at the light uh, saving station for many, many years. Then when he, he grew out of that, he just always came to Plum Island. When I was born, this is where we came to Plum Island. And then coincidentally, uh, I met my husband in 1957 in Haverhill and it ended up, he had a cottage on Plum Island. So we ended up buying that cottage and uh -huh. 
been here ever since. Yeah. And uh, you, you were involved from the earliest days of the, the Friends of the Lighthouse, right? That's correct. Yep. And you continue to be very involved. Uh, Bill, same question for you. How did you uh, how did your association with Plum Island start and how did you get to be involved with the Lighthouse? Well, my family started coming down from Newburyport um, in about 56. We had a little skiff and we'd go out flounder fishing in the basin and uh, the cottage where I'm living right now on um, the basin front. 17 Harbor Street uh, burnt down, the predecessor building burnt down in 58. My father bought the lot for $500 and he was a carpenter. So <laughs> he built a basic cottage and uh, I inherited it and, you know, been on the water since 56. Mm -hmm. And Steve Atherton got me involved uh, with the lighthouse probably about 12, 13 years ago, I'd say. I, uh, didn't know much about it when I first got involved. And wherever I go, I end up doing projects, okay? So <laughs> there yeah. were several to be done and we've had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. And uh, the, the group, uh, all of you have done such a great job over the years. Uh, Jen, uh, you and I met recently. Uh, we'll talk about yeah. that in a little while, but I know uh, I've learned something about the special connection you and your family have had to Plum Island uh, and the lighthouse. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. My grandfather was Arthur W. Woods, and his grandfather was Arthur W. Woods Sr., uh, the lighthouse keeper of Plum Island from 1905 until he died in 1919. So my ancestor uh, held Plum Island Lighthouse for 14 years. Uh, I like to say the lighthouse keeper is my grandfather's grandfather because it puts the passage of time into context for me and kind of makes it personally relevant. But as a side note, he, Keeper Woods, he also was the lighthouse keeper at Baker's Island, Salem, um, from 1887 to 1905. And mm -hmm. then before that, he was stationed at Wood End. So really a lifetime of lighthouse keeping, I guess. Um, and then last week, my mother actually just finished cleaning, um, cleaning up the tombstone of Keeper Woods um, mm. and his wife, Emma, at Newburyport's Oak Hill Cemetery. So it looks beautiful. And those letters, USLHS or um, the United States Lighthouse Service, uh, those can be seen on the tombstone. So that's pretty neat. And then my grandparents, Barbara and Arthur Woods, they were among the original founders and members of uh, the Friends of Plum Island Light. Right. Uh, but you personally, did you uh, live on Plum Island or spend a lot of time on Plum Island when you were a kid? I actually grew up in Newberry. And so mm -hmm. I would ride my bike with my sister and all my childhood friends and We'd ride our bike down from Newberry to my grandparents' house, kind of park our bikes and then swim in the basin and row skiffs. And my grandmother would make us lunch. <laughs> so mm -hmm. so uh, Rosalind, as you mentioned, you've been involved with the Friends of Plum Island Light uh, since the beginning. Uh, could you maybe say a little bit more about how the group was formed, who formed it? I know uh, there was a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, the late uh, Barbara Keezer, who certainly had a lot to do with that, and uh, Arthur Woods, uh, Jen's grandfather also. Uh, well, actually, the first aha moment was from Barbara Woods. 
um, she was reading one of her lighthouse magazines and they printed a doomsday list and Plum Island Light was on it. So mm -hmm. she immediately called Barbara Kieser and they had been friends for quite a while. And uh, Barbara got all excited and she called me because of my uncle Tom and my lo love of history and the fact that my husband was a museum curator at one time and he could guide us where to go next. Well, so that's what happened. Uh, that was the original aha moment. And Barbara and I went to Coast Guard Station. They said, well, that's not the lighthouse that was on the doomsday list. That was Plum Island, New York. Okay. I was going to say, I didn't think Plum Island, <laughs> but, Mass was ever on the... Yeah. But however, but however, it's not a bad idea. A lot of lighthouses are getting turned over to private organizations and uh, they are expensive for us to run and it, it might be a dream come true for everybody. So contact back and forth and finally we went into Boston Coast Guard and the whole the ball got rolling at that point and that was in 1993. Mm -hmm. And then when we found out we could really do it, we approached Tim Harrison, American Lighthouse Foundation at the time, now it's New England Lighthouse. No, it's the other way around. It was New England Lighthouse oh, Foundation, okay. now it's the American Lighthouse Foundation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we contacted him and he said, sure, you can come under our wing if you do get the cooperation. And he told us what to do, which we did. And then we, uh, Barbara called Steve Atherton. He came in next and a few others, Steve Lyons, uh, um, Bob Smith, and, and got enough people to contribute enough money to start the thing going and hired a lawyer, made, wrote the papers, applied for permit. And, and Tim took care of a lot of the stuff for us. So then the ball got rolling and we got the lighthouse. We originally got it with a five-year lease from the Coast Guard with the thought that if we were successful, they would turn it over to us. But in the meantime, they found out it was easier to turn it over to a city and then the city turned it over to us. Yeah, which, which is what happened, and yeah. then the city didn't turn it over to us. Right, so it's a it's a lease agreement with the, the lease city. Situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So just to be clear, uh, as you said, it, it began as a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation, but the, your group is a, a separate organization today. Right. right. We, we thought it would be a lot more difficult to get a five hundred one c three, and it it wasn't difficult at all. Mm -hmm. I applied for it and we had it within months. Yeah, yeah. Just want to be clear on that. So if we could talk a little bit about the history of the, the light station itself and any of you are welcome or any of or all of you are welcome to answer these ne next couple of questions. But uh, first of all, the mouth of the Merrimack River is known for being very treacherous. You're all very aware of that. Uh, the sands have shifted there over the years. And I understand the location of the lighthouse, I think, is not exactly where the uh, original uh, lights were built back in, like, uh, was it 1788? Am I correct about that? Nowhere near. Mm -hmm. It's been all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> you'd, have to, you'd have to see a map. Bill put a really great mask, map in the um, kiosk, showed the original shape of Plum Island. Where the lighthouse is now, actually where my house is now, wasn't here. There was no basin. It was just a little peak of land that came out of what we call Old Point Road now. So yeah. all this land came over from Salisbury in the 1830-something, formed a big spit of land. So the lighthouse was useless Yeah, where it was. 
Right. And uh, I'm sure the, the mouth yeah, so of the, the There were two lights, too. You know, there were basically range lights, and yeah. they were on the side of the uh, south side of the river as it ran out probably about four tenths of a mile south of where the uh, South Jetty is now. And that was about 1830, 35. And Salisbury Point was actually, would be overlapping where the Plum Island Point is today. And then in 1841, a storm blew through Salisbury Point and they had two river mouths. Okay. And, um, <laughs> so then it migrated to the mouth being where it is today. Yeah. And, in 1880, when they started the jetty, that that finalized it. It was definitely there. So, mm-hmm. so has it been fairly stable there in recent years, as far as uh, the mouth of the the river? That really hasn't shifted. Since 1898, it's not too bad. Yeah. yeah. So as they started the jetties, you know, they've mm-hmm. got to establish the mouth, and you know, there's been erosion problems on the ocean front, and now there's erosion in the river. You know, where the south jetty connects the land. You know, yeah. where the lighthouse is, has been stable. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned the kiosk, uh, Rosalind, uh, Bill, like you've had a lot to do with that. The, that's uh, a recent development there. So I just want to mention that again. And if people are visiting the lighthouse there, they'll want to take a look at the, the kiosk that has uh, some material on the history of the place. Right, so. It's got just about everything. Yeah. But and I know you have a lot inside the base of the lighthouse, too, if people are able to be there for a tour. That's correct. Yeah, but it, but it gives you a good feel for the property mm-hmm. and what you've yeah. gone through. Probably Jen Jen put the timeline together, so she'd be better at that. One side of it is the timeline of everything that's happened from mm-hmm. the beginning, actually before the lighthouses were built, yeah. when they were just day beacons, and uh, how the merchants got together and got the money together to do all this stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, right up to the present time. Yeah, and it's all put together in a timeline. That's great. That's the old pictures. Yeah, yeah. I think what bothered all of us was that you know visitors would come to the lighthouse when it's closed, and there was very little information to be seen on the lighthouse. So they say this is neat, but they didn't know the history or anything. And so the kiosk tells them basically everything: history, where it's been, the river migration, what the friends are, how to contact us how to mm-hmm. buy a brick, uh, what, who the lighthouse keepers were. I mean, the whole ball of wax is right there in the kiosk, including QR codes. <laughs> uh-huh. So they can even read, read more through on their phones if they want to take advantage yeah. of that. Through yeah. our website, Jen's website that she made for us. And- yeah. Yeah. Since you mentioned that, I, I will, uh, I will uh, mention right now that uh, Jen created a new website for the friends, which is uh, what's the address for that? So it's www.friendsofplumislandlight.org. And so far, we just have a basic website um, that we set up for tours uh, to learn about the Friends. And like Bill was saying, our most recent projects and how to support the light. Um, And then right now, members of the Friends are kind of working on creating written stories um, I know Steve Atherton, he's working on writing up some stories to go with some photos that we can post on the site and really just continue to kind of tell the story of the history of the light. I think we're also going to add the pieces that we have on the kiosk because we have them in digital form. So I think we'll go ahead and add those 
um, mm-hmm. kind of educational pieces to the website too. So right now it's just kind of a basic shell and then we'll keep adding as we go. It's kind of a living, breathing document. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, that's the nice thing about a website as opposed to say a book. Uh, you know, it's yeah. a little harder to, to change right. a book that's out there, but a website is always uh, in progress. Uh, so it's beautiful. It's a beautiful website and, uh, you know, get even better as time goes on, I'm, I'm sure. So just a, a little bit back to the history for, for a couple minutes there, uh, the original range lights, which uh, now there's the single light, uh, but originally range lights were established there. And uh, am I remembering the date right? 1788. Yeah. Yep. And uh, sometimes I, I, I always try to, uh, I always shy away from making absolute statements like this, that it's the, was the first range lights in the United States. You see that sometimes, but I'm not positive. It was. We believe uh, that. Okay, probably, most likely, the, the for original range lights in the, in the United States. Uh, and for listeners who might not know, of course, you have a, with range lights, you have a front range light and a rear range light, and the uh, mariners as they're coming into a channel line the two lights up to know that they're, they're in the correct channel. And then Newburyport later in the 1870s got another pair of range lights, uh, more in the downtown area, and they're still there on, on Water Street. They're not active anymore, but... It's a little unusual for there to be two uh, sets of, you know, fairly major range lights uh, like that coming into a, a harbor. So obviously Newburyport was a really important place. What, what, you, what was so important about Newburyport? What was going on that led to the establishment of, uh, of those lighthouses? I thought since the merchants put it all together to begin with and came up with the money that it had to have something to do with the merchants in town. Shipping was important. Yeah getting goods important, getting goods up to Lowell, Haverhill, Lawrence, that was important. This was easy access to Lowell and Lawrence and so forth. You know, Newburyport was a huge, you know, shipbuilding uh, port. Yeah, we, we built the you know, ships here. You know, so uh, there was a lot of traffic of new boats being built and repairs being made. And, you know, Newburyport way back then, I mean, was, was as big a port as Boston. So yeah. it was just a lot of commerce coming through here. Yeah. And a little bit later in the mid 1800s became a center for clipper ship building, which was really important too. So uh, Jen, uh, back to you. Uh, again, we, you and I met uh, very recently at the, the library in Newburyport to go through, through some materials yeah. together. You have uh, donated uh, photos and other materials that originally uh, belonged to your ancestor keeper, Arthur Woods, your grandfather's grandfather. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Over the past couple of years, really, um, my mom and I worked with Sharon Speldener and um, Val Spalding over at the New Report Public Library Archival Center. Um, and we created the Barbara and Arthur W. Woods collection. So basically the items in the collection show daily life around the lighthouse, around the keeper's house, um, around Maplewood Cottage. And Maplewood Cottage is a house on 78th Street, very close to the lighthouse that Keeper Woods actually purchased in 1910 um, while he was living in the lighthouse, in the lighthouse keeper's house as the keeper. And so it's interesting because my family owned the house, um, Maplewood Cottage, for over 100 years. And I think that's important to mention because this meant that all the lighthouse related artifacts stayed in the home throughout the generation. So throughout really a century worth of time around the lighthouse. So 
we are able to really create a collection of a variety of primary and, and secondary sources. The collection includes a diary of the lighthouse keeper's family, which was from 1911, and then the ink pen that I'm assuming went with it. And then I have the diary right here. So is it okay if I read two short little excerpts I think are kind of neat? Absolutely. Yeah, please do. Okay. So on the last page of the diary, it says um, it's signed Miss E. Grace Woods, who she was the keeper's daughter, um, Plum Island Lighthouse, Newburyport, Mass. And then she wrote the quote, some people are like fountain pens. They do write occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought that was neat. And then this is another neat entry on um, February 10th. It reads, um, cloudy. I'm feeling much better. Par, he was the lighthouse keeper. They called him Par. And Art went over to the lights. Pole on the red light is almost on the beach. Par and Art moved the house today. So I'm assuming that's lighthouse. I forgot to say that little kitten Teeny died this week. Snowed hard in the afternoon, but did not amount to much. So Parr going over to the lights is mentioned again and again um, throughout this diary. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the collection also includes poems about Plum Island, which I love as someone who teaches poetry. Newspaper clippings that date back all the way to the 1800s. There's receipts in the collection for payment um, for lighthouse keeping and also just records of the salary for keeping the lights, all the deeds. So the deed to Maplewood Cottage, um, the deeds that were passed down through the generations. Something really interesting that I feel like is in the collection too is um, the obituaries of the keeper's siblings. So my family kept all of the obituaries of the whole lighthouse keeping family. Um, some of the obituaries show the tragic death. So um, his brothers both died as young men. One brother was a sleepwalker and he walked overboard a yacht in the night while the keeper wow. was with him. There were, um, it was a group of young men on the boat. And so uh, the keeper had to report back the next morning that his brother had passed, um, likely due to sleepwalking and walking over the board. Um, his other, the lighthouse keeper's other sibling died at 23 of heart issues. Um, but my favorite part of the whole collection are these postcards that were sent to and from Lighthouse Keeper and his wife to their grown children. Because again, they just show the daily life. Um, and in the postcards, they talk about uh, their time living on the island um, and keeping the light. Yeah. So lots, lots of things to see in the collection. Um, the new report archival center is an amazing place. So I strongly suggest a visit. Yeah. Oh, me too. And uh, it's a, it's an amazing collection and, you know, it's just a wonderful thing that, that you've uh, donated that to the library and that it's available to the public. Uh, there aren't that many collections like that related to a particular keeper uh, with, with so much material, uh, photos and other material. And I should mention also that not all of it is Plum Island. There's some stuff, uh, at least photos of uh, Baker's Island as well, where you, you mentioned he was keeper for, for quite a while. And uh, I also mentioned before we move on that uh, you and the library have consented to uh, some of those materials being integrated into the U.S. Lighthouse Society archives as well. And we'll eventually make some of the, the pictures available online that way. So yes. that's yeah. So th thank you for that. 
so uh, just before we move on, are there any other like stories, anecdotes or anything to do with the, the family's history at uh, Plum Island, Jen, at the lighthouse? Well, I was thinking um, to all the listeners, I just wanted to say that, you know, to ask the questions, to interview your relatives. Um, my grandfather would talk here and there about bits and pieces of the lighthouse family history. Mostly he talked about his aunt Grace, um, who was the keeper's daughter. He really loved spending time with his aunt Grace and her husband, Bill. But it was known that she took care of the light when the keeper was ill. Mm-hmm. So they talked about that quite a bit. Um, but growing up, I was you know, caught up in my own daily life. And I do want to go back and ask questions in the moments when he mentioned um, things here and there. But toward the end of my grandfather's life, he, he passed in 2017. But he began talking about the photo albums that he wanted me to take care of. And there was this one day when I visited and he sat me down on the couch and showed me albums full of photos and the newspaper articles and more um, and asked me to take them home. So I did something that I'm really grateful um, for doing. And I took everything to Staples. I had PDFs made and then I came back to my grandparents' house days later with my laptop and I used a recording software program which was Jing Uh, and I recorded him talking about each one of the photos just so that I would remember and I would know who were you know who was in the photos you know I feel like this was the best thing that I could have done not only for just the information that I learned but mostly for the way that I could see was thrilled um, with my how I was invested and curious and and asking questions and so, but he was born in 1931 and his grandfather, the keeper passed in 1905. So he didn't know him in person, but he knew of all the stories of the keeper uh, and his family through all of the artifacts left behind. So there were three stories that he talked about over time. I don't know if we have time for me to give a little blurb about them or not, but sure. We have all um, the time we need. That's okay. a nice, nice, you know, nice thing about a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> you can always cut it out. But um, I was thinking it's it's almost like you can recreate the story of the keeper's family's life just through um the diary, the postcards, the photos, and more. But the first story that he used to talk about was one in 1908. There's a newspaper article about it where everyone's just panicking because of a sea monster at the mouth of the basin. And so Keeper Woods runs out and he has this dictionary that he's holding in his hand and showing everyone that was actually a mola or a sunfish. Right. I've seen those. They do look kind of like sea monsters in a way. Yeah. Uh, And then the second one he talked about a lot was that it's a 1910 article that's actually in the first floor of the lighthouse now. uh, And it's called, Can He Attend to Two Lights? Grave Responsibility Rests on Keeper Woods. So it's about the government reducing costs for keepers by having him make daily trips across the mouth of the river um, to care for black rocks in addition to his own station of Plum Island Light. And then the third one that he talked about was the story of the keeper's son, so his father, and in a newspaper article from the Newburyport Daily News, which was in January of 1910. The headline was A Sturdy Lad from Plum Island, Arthur Woods Walks from the Point to Jackman School. 
And then there's a little excerpt from that article that I think is interesting. It says, Arthur Woods Jr., the 13-year-old son of Arthur Woods, lighthouse keeper at Plum Island, is so desirous of an education that distance has no terrors for him. <laughs> <laughs> Monday, he walked from Plum Island Point to the Jackman School in this city where he is a student. And in spite of the bitter cold and high wind, he was on hand again yesterday. <laughs> so... That's great. Um, so those are three stories. So I feel like most of the stories are from the primary sources that were saved in the house yeah. over the years. Yeah, that's it's all fantastic. This stuff's like treasure. You know, it's absolute gold. Uh, and again, you know, you and your and your grandfather before you were to be commended for for saving that uh, and uh, again making it available. It's just a just a great thing. Let's talk a little bit more about the friends uh, and uh, the friends of Plum Island Light and all the things that have been accomplished over the years. I've watched it uh, since early on. Uh, any of you can take this, but what are some of the major restoration projects the friends have carried out over the years? The first restoration the Coast Guard did for us. Right. They gave us the lighthouse with a full new set of shingles and a sturdier staircase and a new lightning rod and. 30 some odd thousand dollars worth of work they did. Mm-hmm. And then the group has paid all the money since. Probably the biggest job that we've done is the windows. And Bill led that group on the windows. So uh, he's probably better off to talk on it. But it was quite a feat because the windows were not only curved, they bubbled. So they had to be fabricated. Yeah, this is the lantern glass you're talking about. Right. Yeah, like right mm-hmm. behind you, all those panels that are diamond shaped and triangle shaped, uh, Jeremy, they're all they're all bent glass. Yeah, and uh, bent glass I, and bubbled out. <laughs> yeah, so they actually build a mold, you know, the exact size of those things, a steel mold, and then heat the glass pane up to fall into that mold. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and it's going to be within a like a sixteenth of an inch. You know, to fit within the frame. Yeah. You know, which is steel all the way yeah. around. Try and find a source of qualified glass and a qualified installer, which is very, very difficult to do. Yeah. And it turns out this uh, Ron Barrett, another director, has a friend that was called Jay Green that worked for New England Glass and Finishing in Salem, New Hampshire. And he took on the project and had a real focus to get it done for us. And mm-hmm. he retired on our job <laughs> and we're still <laughs> working for a couple of days afterwards. Wow. So we, we, we started thinking we had four panes of glass broken and we ended up with six and uh, they got it all done one day and we came back to do some glazing on the outside and the panel in the door, which was the biggest panel replaced, was cracked. Fortunately for us, when they took the glass out, they found that it was a little bit oversized. So the manufacturer agreed to replace it and New England Glass and Finishing agreed to replace it. So it wasn't on us. Um, and they reglazed the whole outside of the, the light and did a fantastic job. And the money for that whole project, which which was about $17,000 was, was donated by one That's family. That was the most difficult job I think we took on and, and the most expensive. And I think that was done, I think it was in 2019 was the year. Does that yeah. sound right, Russ? Yeah, probably. 
Uh, it looks fantastic. And you mentioned the picture behind me. People, of course, people listening can't can't see that right now. It, it, this is we're on Zoom, and I put up a a picture as my background of inside the lantern room of Plum Island Lighthouse. Yeah. But um, the the that style lantern with the diamond shaped panes, I think, is is very beautiful. But it's also obviously more difficult when you have to do a project like that and replace the glass. It's a lot harder than them. And very costly. Jeremy, do you see much many curved glass lighthouses? Um, there are a number of other lighthouses that have similar lanterns to yours. One of the ones in the in New England is Graves Light in Boston Harbor. Uh, right. I think Rockland Breakwater Light in Maine, I think, has yeah. the diamond paints. I talked uh, to the owner of Graves Light, you know, and he said, well, you don't want to buy it where I bought it. You know, they were very, uh, very good at what they do, but very uh, expensive, dated and, you know, I think very expensive and, and dated in the technology they were using to build the glass. So. Yeah. Well, Dave, you know, Dave's done an amazing job there with Graves Light and you, but you, you learn obviously as you, you go along, we all do. It's hard to, to know everything there is to know about Lighthouse uh, renovation until you experience it. <laughs> so is there anything more in the works at this point, anything in the pipeline, re restoration, renovation projects? Well, we've done a lot. We've replaced the floor. We built a shed. Uh, we put in a memorial brick walkway, and you're familiar with the inside of it, but it used to be completely plastered with lathes, and before we got it, the lathes were all taken off, the plaster taken down because it was all mildew. Right. But we, we put in probably an 8 to 10 foot high um, section of the way it used to look, just to give you an idea, so, and it's, it's made the downstairs a lot nicer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put lighting in the stairway. We put a new floor, and I think I said the flagpole benches, yeah. uh, a new catwalk. We we put a new uh, cable railing system around the catwalk. Oh, that's right. Yes. The the cables used to go through the pipes, um, and that was causing corrosion problems within the pipe pipes. So we built stainless clamps that clamped the, the uh, stanchion and then allowed the cables to sit outside of the stanchion. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's worked pretty well. We're trying to get a uh, contractor to paint the, um, you know, the railing system and the, the black from the catwalk to the top. He yeah. showed up one day last week, but he, <laughs> I've been trying to get a schedule for him. Working with contractors is not always easy. Yeah, we've all experienced that with lighthouses and our homes. <laughs> you mentioned the, the Rosalind, you mentioned the shed, which is uh, fairly new. And they, the shed is in the style of a, like a life-saving service uh, boathouse, right? It's, it's a replica of the boathouse that was there, which is still there on 45th Street. Right. It was moved from its original location. It's actually a private home now, right? It's a private home. It's It's where it was located when it got to this part of the island, it was actually the boathouse from the southern end. Uh, oh, the station. Okay. There were two stations down here. Okay. One was down the southern end, and that was a boat, a boat, a small enough to move, in other words. And they moved it and had an auxiliary boathouse. Oh, okay. I wasn't clear on uh, its history. There's a, there's a picture in the lighthouse, Jeremy, of these people, lifesavers, going out in a boat through the surf. <laughs> to try and make a rescue and you, you would never try it you know anybody yeah 
any sanity or concern for their life wouldn't wouldn't try and do that. Yeah. Well, they were a special breed, those uh, yeah. surf men in the life-saving service. And they had that motto, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. In other words, they, <laughs> they had to do their duty, but they never knew if they were going to make it back or not. That's accurate, I think. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a, a little bit about the, the lens. You're lucky enough to still have an active fourth order Fresnel lens. I think most of our listeners are from, you know, our lighthouse buffs are familiar with Fresnel, F-R-E-S-N-E-L lenses, uh, which are mostly made in, in France in the 19th century. And probably it's hard to say a percentage exactly, but in the neighborhood of 10-ish percent uh, of our uh, lighthouses still have their classical Fresnel lenses. So it's nice that you still have that, which makes it kind of special. Anybody want to comment on that? Well, it is beautiful. Working on this kiosk, we did come across something. We didn't know whether there's any validation to it or not anywhere. I don't know. But apparently that was not the first Fresnel lens at the lighthouse. There was a fifth order. That toppled down. Okay. And they said that this lighthouse was important enough to warrant a fourth order lens, which is larger. And, they, and so that came considerably later than the, than the date of the lens. The lens is 1856 or seven. And it was several years after that. Yeah. So this was the previous lighthouse that the, you're talking about would have been a fifth order lens, but then yeah. the, it changed to a fourth order on that fourth. Right. I know there are pictures of the, the new lighthouse, the present lighthouse, 1898, being completed right next to the previous one. Right. And, and then I guess lens across on that they, plant. they carried the lens across from one to the other, which was pretty cool. Um, it is, in some cases, it's really difficult to trace the history of these lenses. Uh, Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse that I'm very involved with, we have a fourth order lens, but it's, it's of a, by a certain maker. And uh, an inspection report from 1935 uh, records a lens with, by a different maker. We don't know why it would have been changed after 1935. So we still trying to figure that out. So a lot of lighthouses have kind of mysteries connected to the, the history of the lenses. Yeah. But I like to call them functional works of art, and they're just so, so beautiful to look at. I'm sure you get a lot of, a lot of comments from visitors there. So for quite a few years now, you've had uh, a kind of a path outside the lighthouse with memorial bricks. Would one of you like to tell me about that, what that's all about? Well, it was a way to support the lighthouse. We sell the bricks, have them engraved to whatever you want them to say, within reason. And mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a good way to celebrate a wedding, celebrate a birth, celebrate a death, uh, just to remember we've sold, I, I wish Steve were here. I think we've sold way over 500 bricks. We're pretty well filled the walkway. Yeah. Are, are there still bricks for sale? Can people yes. still do that? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. The $75, uh, Russ? They're $75 now, yes. You're limited with what you can put. There's, you can have one to three lines and no more than 14 letters to a line, including yeah. punctuation and spaces. So mm -hmm. you are limited. Yeah. But and uh, I know there's names of some of the, the keepers of the past, including Arthur yeah. Woods, uh, probably yes. probably your grandfather uh, has a brick and your grandfather's grandfather. Is that right, Jen? I believe there are bricks. Yeah, we, for, yeah. we bought one. Yeah. You know, the lighthouse bought one for the, some of the keepers that we knew of. Mm -hmm. George Keyser. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. I should have mentioned before, we we're talking about Barbara Kieser was one of the founders of the organization, her ancestor, George, her grandfather, right? Uh, George, grandfather, George, yeah. George Kieser, who was a keeper there. And uh, there's a few other places like Thatcher Island, Boston Light, I believe is an assistant. Uh, there's a picture of him and his wife at Plum Island with a pigeon. I think he raised like carrier pigeons at Plum Island. I is that right? So. Um... I, I guess a lot of the light, you know, know more than we do about this, but apparently a lot of the lighthouse keepers had pigeons, uh, probably a way to get word to somebody in the old days. Yeah, I and, believe they did that at Boone Island Light in southern Maine, which is really isolated. It was like eight miles out in the ocean. So that's, yeah. for a while, that's how they sent messages <laughs> to shore. Yeah, that's a neat picture, the picture of uh, keeper. We, we do have a picture of the lighthouse. It looked like there were chicken coops in the background. But, that would make sense. But it was at the same time as uh, George Keyser had the homing pigeons. So yeah, well, there's certainly think it was to store his pigeons. Yeah, well, there may have, there probably were chickens there at times too. I would imagine probably. most most family life stations on the mainland had had chickens. Some of them had cows. Ever see pictures yeah, of? But a don't they just roam around loose, don't they? Which which the chickens or the cows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously we put the. A yeah. cow in a cubby, but yeah, I think the chickens just roamed around loose. In some cases, yeah. There's a picture of uh, Ipswich, which isn't far from you. Uh, there were range lights at Ipswich, uh, what's now Crane's Beach. And there's a great picture of the keeper feeding his chickens on the beach with the chickens just running around in the sand on the beach. Yeah. So, yeah. I also wanted to just mention that information about purchasing a commemorative brick is on the website. Um, just in case people wanted to go there and learn how to do that and all. Well, thank you for mentioning that. That's that's good to know. So uh, people can find that at the, the website very easily. So let's uh, talk for a minute about the, the keeper's house that's right next to the lighthouse uh, where the keepers and families live for, for many years. And could you remind me uh, when or about when was the light automated and the keeper was removed? 1945, uh, I think it was the last. 1945, yeah, was the last keeper. 1945, okay. Yeah. And the house is being used how now? The Paco River Wildlife uh, rents it out to the interns in the summertime. Okay. Wintertime, I don't think I've ever seen anyone there. Yeah. I know it used to be occupied by the manager of the wildlife refuge and his family, yeah. right? But now the interns yeah. use it. It's interesting. I have a clipping that was part of the collection. Um, it's an article from the Lighthouse Digest. And it was September of 94, uh, and it was titled Group Form to Save New Report Light, which is an article from the time when the light was, you know, still under the federal government and, and the Friends um, was in the process of being formed. But I thought it was fascinating because in the article, it mentioned that the Friends also wanted to eventually oversee the Keeper's House in addition to the light. Um, but... I was thinking that was a long time ago now. So, I mean, almost 30 years, but, but Roz, uh, I was wondering if that was one of the initial goals. Um, that was one of the initial goals, but mm -hmm. the, the uh, wildlife service was not like the Coast Guard. They wouldn't turn it over to us. They wanted a like exchange of property and the property yeah. was valued at <laughs> a pretty high amount. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they wouldn't sell it for money. You had to exchange it with another piece of property. So there's no, no way we could do that. It's interesting because the land directly around the lighthouse belongs to the city. 
right? And then the rest of the grounds, so including the Lighthouse Keeper's home, are overseen by the Parker River National Wildlife Refuge. So few when moving- the Coast Guard turned it over to the uh, Parker River, they cut out 110 by 120 piece of land that the lighthouse, the tower was on. And that's that's what is donated, given to the city now. Yeah, well, I hope maybe something will change uh, maybe for the good with the house. Not that it's not uh, being used well now, but I'd love to see you guys, your organization but, but it's get it. it's older than it looks. It actually, because it's got siding on it, it looks like a newer house, but I think it was 1870 something that it was built. Right, you know, built during the, when the previous uh, lighthouse was in use. And the manager of Matt Hillman is his name, the manager of the Parker River National Wildlife. Now, he was wonderful when I reached out and asked if I could see inside the keeper's home. Um, you know, if we could all go in, he made he made a time right away. So I think it's exciting to be able to kind of collaborate with them and see inside and get to learn about it maybe eventually we could have a plaque on the outside of it just to kind of show that it's a historical building or who knows so jen you mentioned uh before that you teach poetry but you're, you're the author of several books including a couple of children's books that relate to plum island that i think are, are really cool can you just maybe say a little bit about that Yes, I teach for Leslie University, and I help teachers use poetry in their kindergarten through 12th grade classrooms. Um, and then I also write books for teachers about integrating the arts and language arts and in social studies. Those are published by Shell Education. So my first book about Plum Island kind of combines my love of poetry and history, um, my love of the island and teaching. So it's an alphabet book of short poems for all ages. Um, many of the poems are called found poems in that I took words and phrases right from sources. So right from some newspaper articles, videos, signs, just in an effort to stay as close to the historical information as possible. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I was able to include the actual article in the book so that readers could find the words from my poems in the text. But as an elementary school teacher, I taught elementary school for almost 18 years. Um, and I experienced really how those historical primary sources, the old newspapers, photos, documents, they really do spark wonder. Um, and just how they allow us to relate to people and to times of the past. And then my other book about Plum Island is a baby board book. Um, and that's called B is for beach plums, the ABCs of Plum Island, and that's for the littlest. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's illustrated by um, Alex Edgerly. And then I have scavenger hunts related to the books um, on my website. And just excited when people go out and do the scavenger hunts and kind of experience familiar places around Plum Island with, with fresh eyes. And mm -hmm. then some readers send me their original poems um, about the island and I love to get them that's one of my favorite things is just when kids email me their poems about Plum Island mm. so yeah I can see how that would be special so your, yeah. your books are beautifully done how, how can people get your books or uh, you have a personal website don't you that tells about the books I do it's Jen um, with two n's j-e-n-n um, bogard so b-o-g-a-r-d dot com and then I have photos of all all of the local shops that carry um, the books and they're also available on Amazon through 
um, River Run Bookshop. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, so I have one final question for all of you. Okay, you can fight amongst yourselves as to who's going to answer first. And this is this is for bonus points. All right, uh, and it's actually a two-part question. The uh, question there are questions are uh, what do you love most about your association with Plum Island itself, and secondly, what do you enjoy most about your involvement with the lighthouse? So who wants to go first? <laughs> <laughs> Don't all jump at it. <laughs> Rosalind, you want to go first? Well, who, who, who doesn't love Plum Island? It's hard not to love it, except in the winter. Yeah. And then a lot of people like it then, too. But um, it, it's a friendly place. It's a good, clean place to live. It has its problems, but I like it here. Uh, I don't, I don't, as I said, I don't care for the winters. I, I spent 38 years in the Keys in the wintertime. So yeah. this, is, this is tough for me to get used to full time. But mm -hmm. I love it from spring till fall and yeah, yeah. happy as a clam. Yeah. Uh, and what was the other part of the question? Uh, what uh, is, uh, what do you love most about your association with the lighthouse? I keep learning. I think I know everything and then something new comes along and, and I make a new discovery. And I thought I knew all about the history of the lighthouse. And then I find one thing more. And, and I was just telling Jen earlier that, I was reading some field notes from a surveyor from, well, what date is it, 1826. And he talks about in 1820, the two towers and the keeper's house will move 600 feet. Learning something like that, who would ever knew they moved the houses too? Wow, yeah. I, I had no idea actually. And mm -hmm. it's a, little bits and pieces, you learn new things every day. Yeah. And we well, learned I, a lot working on this kiosk. Yeah, I'm sure. I was amazed at how much information we came up with. Yeah. Well, I've been doing lighthouse stuff for almost 40 years and I learn new stuff every day <laughs> from people like, from people like you and others. So it's, but, it's but always But you deal with a lot of lighthouses. This is just one. You think you yeah. get to a point where you know everything, but boy, you don't. You oh, don't know I, anything at all. That's absolutely true. Jen, you want to take the two-part question? Sure. So what I love most about my association with Plum Island, to me, Plum Island is time with family and friends. My mom and I like to walk the boardwalks of the refuge and spend time on the beach. We always look for sand dollars. That's kind of our thing. Um, my sister and I meet for lunch and my friends and I enjoy the beach. But also the memories, I think the memories of falling asleep at my grandparents' house where that... Uh, you know, the backdrop of that flashing green light on the wall and just hearing the flagpole in the wind. Um, but all the boat trips, learning how to swim, and float, and of course, the lighthouse. And then um, what I enjoy most about my involvement in the lighthouse is definitely the people. So each person here in this podcast um, and the other friends of Island light, the visitors that come to experience it. Um, I just, I love connecting with other people who care about the lighthouse. And this is kind of a side note, but when I was younger, I stayed at my grandparents' house a lot. And one night I woke up in the middle of the night and I saw this like huge apparition, <laughs> like a, a big man or woman or some kind of like person. It was, mm. it's, 
And I remember telling my grandparents and they said, no, you didn't see anything. There was nothing there, but I kind of feel like it might've been the keeper because when I saw his picture on a postcard years later, it was that kind of shape. So I don't know. I just feel like I was always meant to be connected to the lighthouse in mm -hmm. some way. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I don't discount what you experienced. Uh, <laughs> I can still picture what I saw today. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I, I think it, you know, it, it may have been a spirit or it may have been sort of a, a vision that you had that relate to you or, you know, relates to your uh, passion for, for uh, preserving that history. So, yeah. But I think it's a real, a real experience in any case. And uh, I always, when that kind of subject comes up, I always say that whether you believe it literally or figuratively, the spirits of the keepers of the past are very much with us uh, every day. So, um, so Bill, uh, you want to take the question? Okay. Uh, what we love best about Plumai Island is really, you know, the water, being on the water, the proximity, the sunsets. Um, we also the neighborhood of Plumai Island, you know, if, if I walked around the community, I'm in uptown, I mean, nobody would speak to me, you know, down here, I mean, typically, you know, everybody within two blocks of you and, you know, um, you know, what the issues are and things going on with them and other stuff. And it's really a community much different than it is uptown, to be put. As far as lighthouse involvement, I mean, I really enjoy working with other people to get things done. You know, I think it's paid back when you see visitors come to Lighthouse and, you know, they are just so en enthralled with the Lighthouse and that, that, that we've preserved it. And, you know, it just gives you a really good feeling, uh, rewarding feeling for what we're doing. Yeah. You know, it's not a day that doesn't go by when you walk over there and somebody's at the kiosk now or something else and you stop by and talk to them for a few minutes and there's a story there they're from england or new york or whatever you know and so, mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, it's that's great nice to keep doing what we're doing what you're doing yeah well you're doing a great job all all of you here and the whole group friends of plum island light for many years now has done a, a wonderful job at that place and it is a special island, a special lighthouse, very beautiful, uh, one of the few uh, wooden lighthouses left from the 1800s. And uh, I recommend that people check it out. And there are tours available by appointment at this point, which I believe can be uh, secured through the website. Is that right, Jen? Yes. Um, right on the website, we can go ahead and there's, there's dates on the website that people can sign up for a 15-minute slot. So yeah. For the 2022 season, um, you know, just coming off of being closed for COVID, we decided, you know, we really wanted to keep all of our visitors safe and our volunteers safe. Yeah. So we have four days um, that you can, people can go ahead and sign up for 15 minute slots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. I recommend people check that out, but even if they can't make one of the, the tour days, it's worth going to the grounds and seeing the beautiful place and seeing Plum Island in general and the wildlife refuge also, the whole Southern part of the island is a beautiful wildlife refuge and people should check that out as well. Yes, uh, and people can always email for a tour as well. Mm -hmm. um, so if they can't make the tour days, they can email and request a day for a tour. Yeah, that's a good point. And all that contact info is on the, on the website as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. So again, thank you all, uh, Rosalind Esposito, Jen Bogard, and Bill Cooper. I really appreciate you spending this time with me today. And uh, I got to get back there because I haven't uh, been there since you put the, the information kiosk there. So I'm overdue for a, for a visit. Yeah. Uh, so, and Rosalind, I'll just personally thank you for all the times you've helped with <laughs> tours when I've brought tour groups there over, over the years. Uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, Thanks for the hospitality. Again. Yeah. So thank you all so much. And I'll be seeing you on Plum Island. Thank you. Great. Thank you. You can learn more about Plum Island Lighthouse at friendsofplumislandlight.org. You can also make an appointment for a tour through the site. I have many fond memories of Plum Island, as I said before, going back to when I was a kid. In addition to the lighthouse, as I also mentioned earlier, uh, my wife and I have often visited the, the uh, Parker River National Wildlife Refuge on the island. It's a great place for bird watching or just to take a nice walk on the beach. I've been to the Parker River Wildlife Refuge. It's really a great day trip to do. Thanks to today's guests, Jen Bogard, Rosalind Esposito, and Bill Cooper. Thanks also to all the volunteers, members, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Check out uslhs.org to learn about all the things that the Society offers. And remember that donations and memberships help to support this podcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or any podcast platform that allows you to post reviews. And please share word of this podcast on social media. The American artist John Shedd once wrote, quote, a ship in the harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for, end quote. The next episode of Lighthearted will feature a conversation with two people connected to 40 Mile Point Light Station in Michigan. As always, to our regular listeners and to our new ones, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light. <laughs>